Thank you, Todd, and thank you, Tony, as you lead us in this Mission Initiative Sunday and our focus on Mercy Ministry. Um, I know many of you, as we think about Mercy Ministry, look out and know that many of us in this room have been objects of Mercy Ministry over the course of our lives. And if you haven't been yet, just stick around. You will be over a period of time because we all have needs. And at the very heart of the gospel is this call for mercy. And in fact, we find in the passage that's before us in Habakkuk chapter 3, a cry for mercy that comes forth from this prayer. And it's that mercy we're going to talk about uh, this morning as we look at this remarkable passage together. Let's give our attention to Habakkuk chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 all the way to verse 16. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigayanoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence. And plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon, they stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched to the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters." I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. To inquire in the temple of our God. So before we look into this word, let's pray together and ask for his help and blessing. 
Father, we need your help. As we approach Habakkuk chapter 3, we want to know your word for us. We want to know the specific things that you would have for us to hear from this, the text of Scripture. Be mindful of our need now. Come and meet us and glorify yourself in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you might be able to tell, I'm kind of battling a cold up here. So I'm going to do my very best to not hack my way all the way through this, this message and um, scare you with those coughs as they come across this loudspeaker. Kabaka um, knew a little bit about ailing health. As you can hear in the very final refrains of this particular chapter in Habakkuk 3, he, he's not doing so well. His body's trembling, he's quivering at the sound, his rottenness is taking over his bones. His legs, he says, even tremble beneath him. It's a frightening description, uh, one that... It sounds almost like an all-out panic attack of sorts that Habakkuk is going through. Because he's heard a very difficult word from the Lord. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you, you know something of that word. A word of judgment has come from God. Habakkuk had spoken to the Lord in the chapter 1 of this amazing text, complaining concerned about all of the iniquity that he saw everywhere as he looked out in Judah. He wanted the Lord to do something. And it didn't seem like the Lord was doing anything. And the Lord responded and said, you know what, I'm up to more than you can even imagine. In fact, if I were to tell you, you wouldn't even believe what it is I'm up to. I'm raising up a wicked and ruthless nation called Babylon. And I'm going to bring them into Judah and I'm going I'm to wipe the slate clean with them. And I'm going to raise them up as the superpower of this era in history. And Habakkuk, having heard those words, disturbed by what it is that the Lord had said, said, no, 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 this is not what I had in mind. When I was speaking about the wickedness of Judah, I meant to come and bring warm, nice, easy, smooth restoration. I didn't, I didn't think of judgment. I didn't think of discipline. I didn't think of violence. That's, that's not what I had in mind at, at all. And so I'm going to sit here in this watchtower, as he says at the beginning of Habakkuk 2, and I'm going to wait for your response. And the Lord responded last week as we heard from the word of the Lord that, yes, I will come in judgment upon Judah by, by bringing Babylon, but then I will raise up another nation which will come in judgment upon Babylon, and I will, in due time, restore unto Israel the reality of its kingdom. Wait for it. Patiently wait for it. You actually, Habakkuk, will never see this. Generations of people will come and go. Eras of history will go by the wayside. Nations will rise and fall. But wait for it. For don't count slowness as man counts slowness. For a thousand years is as a day to me, and a day is as a thousand years. I love you, and that's why I'm patient towards you. 
As Peter tells us, I wish that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Wait for it. Habakkuk, as we open in Habakkuk chapter 3, now comes to the Lord in a prayer. He's been coming to the Lord in a complaint. (laughs) He's been coming to the Lord with protest. He's been coming to the Lord giving him a piece of his mind. But now he comes to the Lord into prayer. And he says there in verse 2, In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Maybe the four most well-known words in the book of Habakkuk. I had a friend who used to say those four words when he knew that his dad was going to discipline him. Dad, in wrath, remember mercy. As he reached for the paddle... In wrath, remember mercy. You know, what's interesting is that word wrath here in in verse um, 2 of our text is the Hebrew word rogez. It's not necessarily the traditional word for wrath. It's a word that means to tremble, to shake with disturbance. In fact, this whole passage shakes. (laughs) This whole passage shakes. Whether it's God shaking the mountains and the rivers, or whether it's Habakkuk himself in verse 16 shaking and trembling in his very body, this whole passage shakes. It literally could be translated in the time of shaking, in the time where the things that we tend to trust in are falling apart. Lord, remember mercy. When the things that we traditionally bank on give way, remember mercy. When our lives fall apart and are deconstructed before our very eyes, Lord, in the day of wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk finishes this passage in verse 16 with this note of incredible hope that seems ironic and almost almost unbelievable. His body trembles. His lips quiver. Rottenness enters his bones, meaning to the very core he's dying. The sense of death is overtaking him. His legs give way beneath him. This is a man that at every level is being undone. He's actually coming apart in the way that the world looks like it's coming apart at other ports in this section. Now Habakkuk's coming apart and then notice what he says. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. Now there's one thing that we could say about Habakkuk. It's not that he's been quiet. He's been a talker. And now all of a sudden he's quieted. And and here's what's fascinating. In his quiet waiting before the Lord, he didn't get quiet because things got better. He gets quiet in anticipation of the day of trouble. You, You know when we usually get quiet 
It's when things are at peace. You know, after the day of trouble, it got quiet. (laughs) He says, I quietly wait in and for the day of trouble. You ever looked on the horizon and seen a storm coming? Maybe you've been like me sometimes in the Mississippi Delta, looking out across those, those miles of cotton fields and seeing, as it were, this roaring thunderstorm coming. And, and you know the kind where the, the front and the wind is right at the, the cusp of where the clouds move in and it kind of blows you back when the front comes in. It's as if in the watchtower, Habakkuk can see the tornado on the horizon. And his body's trembling. His lips are quivering. His legs are giving way. In fact, the language here is, my body trembles. It's literally the, my bowels tremble is the way that that could be translated. Don't think about that too long, but my bowels tremble. But he, he's a man who is, who's moving towards incontinence as he sees the storm on the horizon and in the midst of its coming, He quiets himself in the presence of the Lord. How does that work? How does that work? We're going to start that dialogue today. We're going to end, Lord willing, that dialogue next week. But what does it mean to not have to have your circumstances be right where you want them to experience quiet waiting in the Lord? but to have actually your world falling around you and be in the midst of the calm of God. What does that mean? I want to look at this passage with you in four ways. I want you to see first the reverence that Habakkuk feels in this passage. Because I think that's a huge clue. It's a huge clue to the calm in the midst of the wreck that Habakkuk is in this passage. It's it's huge. It's the reverence that he feels. Where do I see this? Well, look right there in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Do I fear? Here's the emotion that Habakkuk has as he's heard now the report of the Lord. He's gotten a glimpse of who God is and what it is that he is up to. And no more protests, no more complaints. Now he's, he's fearing the Lord in whom he has spoken to. And he is no longer striving against him, but he's having to submit to him. And in that moment, he feels, he experiences at the core of his being what the Old Testament refers to over and over and over as the fear of the Lord. Having seen something now of the plan of God, that God is in the heavens and he does whatever it is that he wishes, as the psalmist tells us, that the earth is his footstool and he's making all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. Habakkuk is forced to return to the very first principle of theology. You know what that is? That God is God And you are not. That he is the creator and we are the creatures. 
that he is all-knowing and all-powerful and we are finite and weak and his subjects. That he is holy and righteous and does all things well and we are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. When the holiness of God comes together with the acknowledgement of our sinfulness in the presence of God, there is a penetrating, deep and abiding fear that takes over the soul of the person in whom acknowledges those realities. A a humility, because we're put in our place. A reverence, because we cannot believe the immensity of this God. An awe and a wonder and a reverence for who this is, that this is not a God who can be trifled with. No more domesticating God talk. No more nice parlor room kind of conversations ensue. No, instead, this is a God who, as Annie Dillard has written, says, if he were to show up, we'd be wearing hard hats to worship. Because the walls would be shaking. And this plaster would be falling worse than it is. Uh, Not because of any leak in the building, but because of a fresh blow from the Holy Spirit. Who comes awakening the sensibilities of a people who very often have imagined God to be more like them. And have thus toned down the kind of riveting holiness that's displayed here in this passage. The kind of power and immensity that is the creator and the redeemer of all that is. The one who will sit at the great white throne judgment and who will bring to judgment every idle word, every stray thought, every hidden deed. The one who hears those realities and doesn't shake, doesn't tremble, isn't seeing things aright. Isn't seeing things as they are. You see, the tremble of Habakkuk in this passage is the recognition that God is at work in Habakkuk. It is because he is now perceiving the fact that he has at once complained to a God, at once called this God potentially with the allegation of injustice, not answering the iniquity of the age. And now as God has let him in a little bit on his character and even a deeper a deeper glimpse into his plan, Habakkuk realizes that he didn't have a thumbnail sketch of who this God was. But now that he's gotten a real true dose of the immensity of this God, he fears this Lord. Now it's not, as Martin Luther makes the distinction, a servile kind of fear. The fear of a prisoner for a guard. The fear of a criminal to his executioner. It's the fear of a a son before a loving but powerful father. You know, our relationships with our, our fathers, even the best fathers, are complicated. They're figures of authority. There are there are figures who who discipline us when we do wrong. And thus need appropriate respect and reverence or fear. And yet simultaneously, 
They are those who love us, ones who care for us, the ones who nurture us, the ones who tend us, the ones who draw us into their lap and shower us with their love. The reality is we are called, as those who are in Christ, both sons and servants of the living God. And as God relates to us, there is both that sense of closeness in kinship of a son climbing into the lap of a father and simultaneously the recognition of being a sinner in the sight of a holy God. The realization is the Bible doesn't tell us to opt for one of those pictures. It gives us both of them and it lets it sit. That your God is both the one who welcomes you lovingly into his family and provides for all of your needs and forgives your transgressions to the fullest and complete degree. And he is simultaneously the same God who will in no way let any wrong not be righted. And in that moment, there's a sense of both endearment and a recognition of danger. A sense of awe that draws almost a moth to flame and a sense of repel that makes us catch our breath. Habakkuk is experiencing that condition of soul as he offers up this prayer to the Lord. And such is the sane position of the one who is seeing God aright as he's revealed in the scriptures. What this means is our familiarity and cavalierness in our relationship with the Lord is a sign of our inability to really see him as he's been presented. Our our flimsy, weak, feathery kinds of depictions of a Santa Claus in the heavenly places who's doling out Tootsie Rolls is not the God who is being described here in Habakkuk chapter 3. And no domesticating idolatrous imaginings of us can change that. You know, there's a sobering moment that happens for all of us. I remember a conversation with my family. It was a hard conversation, very, very hard. After the passing of my nephew, we were speaking about the reality of eternity. We were speaking about the complicatedness of looking over a life that both displayed righteousness and sin, both in technicolor. And we looked at the complication of our own hearts wanting to believe one side of that picture over and against the other. If you've had a loved one die where you're conflicted in spirit about, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But there came a moment where as we sat together deliberating over the soul, where the reality of God's control settled over us. Where in the end we had to come to the realization 
that we're not in control of that. And what we think doesn't change it. He is God. He is God. Now, in that moment like that, do you feel yourself put in your place? Do you feel yourself as the dot on the earth and the earth as the dot in the cosmos and the cosmos as the God who created it all and is in control to the point where he's numbered the hairs on your head and has named the stars that we've not even found? And he will sit in judgment. That's called the fear of the Lord. And we're foolish not to feel it. Habakkuk in this moment feels it. And when you feel the fear of the Lord, when it takes hold, it gives shape to your soul, you know what begins to happen? Clarity begins to happen. You begin to see things better. Like in the moments where you nearly die. And all of the things that just so clutter your life that seem so important become radically small. And everything that you see yourself neglecting becomes very clear that this is what's important. The fear of the Lord helps us discern what's important. And that's where Habakkuk is in the midst of this passage. And from that place of the fear of the Lord, Habakkuk does something else. I want you to see not just merely the reverence that he feels, but I want you to see the request that he makes. The request that he makes. You see, when you begin to experience the reverence of the Lord, your requests of the Lord begin to change. You begin to ask for different things. And I want you to see that he asks for different things. You might expect, if he wasn't feeling the reverence of the Lord, that he would say, oh Lord, just be more patient. Oh Lord, just give us protection. Lord, just deliver us. It would simply be a cry for help, but that's not how he prays. Even though he knows the day of trouble is coming and violence is on the horizon for the people of Judah, he's still in the watchtower looking at the gathering storm that's headed towards the people of God. None of those things, though, are on the lips of Habakkuk. Only one thing is on the lips of Habakkuk. Revival. Revival. Look at how he says it. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, what? Revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Now it's almost... It's almost certain that he means by this phrase, in the midst of the years, in the years that are about to unfold, in the years of trouble, in the years of trouble that are about to unfold, Lord, there's one thing that I desire, there's one thing I ask of you, and that is you would revive what? Your work. You would revive your work. Now, what is revival? What is revival? I know, I know. It's a tent outside of town with sawdust on the ground and an altar call with just as I am. We remember it, many of us in this room. It's not what's being described here. Revival, at its most basic definitional level, even here within the text of the Hebrew, 
It means to live again. It means to live again. When we talk about something being revived, we're talking about a quality of life that was once one way but has now been lost or has significantly diminished to the degree that it vaguely resembles what it used to be. That's when we call something to live again, revive something. Something needs to be revived. It's almost dead or it's heading towards being dead and it needs to be revived. And as he looks out across the people of Judah and he sees the judgment of the Lord come and he knows that it's a disciplinary act and he knows something of the unfolding that God will eventually restore his people, he cries out not merely for protection and deliverance. He cries out for revival. He wants to see the people live again. That's what he wants to see. He wants to see the work of the Lord soar again among the people of Israel. That's what he wants to see. He looks at a people and he sees the shadow of the former self that they were. And he says, I want to see your work revived. When we say the word revive, we usually, I think see something nice, um, exciting. You know, we, as we were singing it as well earlier, didn't you just, ah, oh, revival. Like this is, you know, this has got to be what it is. When we're singing these beautiful refrains and we're reveling in these glorious truths, and yes, there is an exciting, glorious movement of the Spirit of the Lord that brings revival. But you know, one of the ways that God very often brings revival and restores the people of Israel in the Old Testament, you know how? Judgment. Discipline. That's what's going on here. He knows discipline and judgment from the Lord is coming. He knows the Chaldeans are coming. And he says, Lord, use that to revive us. In the midst of those kinds of years, not years where we're in mountaintop experiences, but years where we're in the valley of the shadow of death. Because it's in those years that things often become really clear. And it's in those years that things often get really desperate. And it's in the desperateness where life is often found. It's when the Lord, in a sense, dismantles the things that we call life that are not life, that gives us the vision and the experience to receive his life, which is true life. It's like when we refinish furniture. Something, believe it or not, I used to do and love to do. You see an old piece of furniture and you think, oh man, that thing just needs to be thrown away and you strip it down and you... You get out the, the sandpaper and you, you rub away, as it were, the ugly and the dead to get down to something that's living and beautiful underneath. The Bible calls that a refiner's fire. It's where the, the burnings of the flames of the discipline and the judgment of God brings forth the gold that's been covered up. It's when the wind of the Lord comes and blows and it knocks off the ashes of the smoldering embers and once again there begins to be a spark of flame. 
You see, the recognition here in this request is that as he looks at the judgment and the discipline of the Lord coming, he's not giving up hope. He's placing his hope as that is in the Lord's means of revival. And you know this experientially. When have you typically grown and awakened most often in your own personal and spiritual life? It is when you have come under some discipline. It's when you've come under some discipline. You've run into some kind of wall over and over and over again. You've face-planted throughout life. And in those moments, you wake up and you think, I was really on the wrong track. And a lot of times, a course correction happens. You know what that's called? Reviving. You woke up. You see, this is often the Lord's way. He's patient and patient and patient and so loving until he has to release you into his glorious discipline by which his means of restoring you. And that's the prayer. It was after months and months of fruitless labor that a small outbreak of conversions happened in a little town called Northampton in Massachusetts where a young Jonathan Edwards saw a woman converted and whom he was actually concerned about because she was one of the infamous gossips in the town. And he thought, well, if this woman gets converted, maybe it'll snuff out the, the flame of conversion. But it didn't. Instead, the opposite became true. Five or six more people were converted and over the course of Six months, more than 300 souls were converted in that Northampton town of only about 1,100. That revival, that work of the Spirit of God moved through other preachers and through other towns, touching more than at least 100 towns throughout New England, ultimately landing in Philadelphia. And the work of George Whitfield, the end of the 1730s and the beginning of the 1740s, the Lord used to bring a revival to America. Jonathan Edwards wrote this in a narrative of surprising conversions. He said this, it pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless faith. Wasn't that Judah? They were still sacrificing. They were still really good church-going Middle Tennessee people. They were still bringing their sacrifices. They were still listening to the Torah. They were still going to the feasts and, the fast, and fasting. But their hearts were far from the Lord. They would, they would tip the Lord and in injustice rob those within their community. They would pay homage to their families and at night go out on the town into the lust of the flesh. They were living parallel existence to where they said one thing with their mouth and lived another way with their life. And this iniquity was before Habakkuk, a formal, careless Christianity that no longer moved the heart. It was no longer captured by the gospel. Edward says that's what this was, and this is what happened to them. It became a lively exercise of Christian grace and the powerful practice of the Holy Spirit in religion. Friends, there is no substitute for the work of the Holy Spirit. 
you can't muster it. You can't PowerPoint it. You can't light show it. You can't advertise it. It will not be held captive by the mechanisms of modern advertising or technology. It's not, it's not something you start a Facebook group for. It's a movement of Almighty God, and the wind blows where he wishes. He's in control of it. And Habakkuk's heart, as he looks out at the time in which he lives, and he sees this duality of life among those who call themselves the people of God, he says, what we need is revival. What does he mean? He means sandpaper on what looks like dead wood to bring out its life again. He means exfoliating the soul is what he means. And that's how God works. That's how he works. This is the revival that he's calling for because he sees the reverence. He feels the reverence in his soul, so he requests for a revival. He's not asking for ease. He's not asking. He's not asking, Lord, give us a few more years of religious liberty. Now, religious liberty is a wonderful thing. As long as it doesn't make a lazy people. As long as it doesn't cause us to relax on our laurels to such a degree that it doesn't cost anything in the following of Christ. But our blessings, we are prone to turn into curses. Is it a blessing when a rich man who's already wrapped up in his riches gets more money? Or is it a curse? Is it people who are already comfortable get more freedom? Is it a blessing? Habakkuk prays for this kind of revival. In the midst of these kinds of years, Lord, revive your church. And then he digs a little deep. We'll take just a moment on this. I want you to see the kind of revival that Habakkuk sees. I want you to see the kind of revival that Habakkuk sees. How can he, with such reverence, make this kinds of request? Well, it's because he knows something. He knows something about his God. And this whole section... Verses 3 to 15, which again, we'll circle back over to some degree next week again, is filled with two things. It's filled with hope, and it's filled with history. How do you pray for revival? You, you pray for revival if you have hope. People who don't have hope don't pray for the revival, right? Right? Revival by its very nature is to live again. It's optimistic about the future. If you don't have hope, you're not going to pray for revival. And many times we don't pray positively for the work of the Lord because we really don't believe he's going to do it. We think he's too far gone. So it's hope is there. But here's the other thing. Do you know what actually fills your hope? The history of God's work. The history of God's work. That's what this whole section is about. At the very beginning in verse 3, he uses a word for God that we only see 57 times in the Bible. 41 of which we find only in the book of Job, and it's the only time in the book of Habakkuk we find this 
word for God, Eloh. Eloh. It's an ancient word. Job considered maybe the oldest of all of the Old Testament writings by at least some scholars' estimation. Meaning this is a word that goes back to the very beginnings of who God is. He goes back to the very beginnings using a word unusual in the scriptures to say, I'm going back to the ancient of days, the God of all history. I'm going back to him and I want to recount what he's done in Taman and Mount Parah. What are those? Well, those are the areas surrounding the promised land southeast of Judah and the mountainous range of Mount Sinai. Throughout this passage, he speaks about mountains giving way and Rivers being parted and chariots and horses conquering people and God pulling forth his arrows and his swords. For those of you who are biblical scholars in here, it doesn't take long to recognize he's pulling from the greatest redemptive history and event in the nation of Israel. He's pulling from the Exodus where he parted the waters and the people of God came through with signs and wonders. At Mount Sinai where the mountains quaked and they writhed where the fiery law came forth from the Lord, where he, where, he, where he stilled the sun and the moon in Joshua chapter 10 so that the people of Israel could fight the Edomites and ultimately win at Gibeon. He's going back in history and he's saying, I have the hope to pray for revival now because I know what you have done then. I know your history, I know what you've promised, and I know what you've done. I want you to revive that work in our day. I have hope that you will. And so I wanna wanna remind you of your mercy. Do you know, this is an exercise of reminding God of what he's done. That's what this prayer is. Isaiah tells us that we should give God no rest. That's what he says. That's what Habakkuk is doing here. He's saying, God, in your wrath, remember mercy. Let me tell you about your mercy. You remember when you went into Egypt and you raised up Moses and you brought him through and the Egyptians thought they had some pretty remarkable chariots and horses, but you, he says, were riding horses and chariots. And and you were not angry at the waters, but you displayed your power in parting the waters. And then you used those waters, same picture of redemption you used for judgment. And when at Mount Sinai, when the mountain was quaking and lightning and flashing and the brightness of your glory was being shown, we were at the bottom of that mountain falling once again into iniquity. And we realized all the way through your acts of redemption were also acts of judgment. That redemption and judgment, apart from being separate, were actually woven together throughout the story. That the same water that saved us in the Red Sea became the judgment of Egypt. And the same law that was given, which would become our redemption in Christ, is the same thing that condemns us. You showed us throughout that your redemption comes in and through judgment. And in verse 13, he gives us a hint. He says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Well, in context, who would the anointed be? Well, of course, he's speaking of Moses. In Exodus, he was the deliverer. 
But in the context of the hope that is the future, who would it be? More than likely a Davidic king. Someone who will come who's like Moses, who will lead another exodus. Someone who will come who is like David, the anointed, who will rule and reign on high. Someone who is like them but even greater than them. Well, who will it be? Well, he gives us a hint. This person crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Now, if any of you have made your way through any biblical theology at all, that language of crushing head probably sticks out to you. It's the first telling of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Where when Moses writes recounting the engagement of God with Adam and Eve, that he will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the Savior. Do you see Habakkuk is not merely looking back to the history of Egypt. He's simultaneously reflecting the hope that is to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a hope that finds itself in the combination of judgment and redemption, which is called the cross. The cross is the ultimate judgment of God. It's the place where the full reckoning of your sin was ultimately quenched. It's the place where the wrath of God towards our sin was poured out upon your substitute, the anointed, the Messiah, the Savior, who in that moment was crushing the head of the serpent. You see, it was in the cross where in wrath he remembered mercy. It was in the cross as he's pouring out his wrath that he is remembering mercy. That he is looking at you. That he is looking at his people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. That he has come to answer the request of revival. And he will revive through the power of his son and the march of his spirit throughout the kingdom and throughout the ages. You see, that's what Jesus has come to do. And it's why Jesus... In the Garden of Gethsemane that night as he stood on the cusp of that moment of judgment that is also redemption, his body trembled. And his lips quivered. And he sweat great drops of blood. And he asked that this cup would be passed from me. And yet it was not. And in that moment he quietly waited for the day of trouble. You see, Jesus is our Habakkuk. He is our greater Habakkuk. The one who brings the true case before Almighty God and the one who satisfies it in himself. And what that means is there is no case against you who are in Christ because Jesus has fully paid for the record of your sin. Are you still living under the cloud of this judgment? Or are you living now by the light and the brightness of the redemption and the revelation of God? Have you forgotten it? Are you now maybe even beginning to move into the disciplinary movements of the Lord that he might restore you? Do you come to the house of the Lord? Do you leave this house to go do your own will? Or are you submitting yourself to God?
It's our prayer. In the days to come, as trouble comes, and it will come, that we will sit quietly in the presence of the Lord, knowing that our great Habakkuk, the Lord Jesus, has already calmed the storm. And so we will sit in the eye of Christ, though the world would give way and the mountains would fall into the sea. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, would you please give us the character of heart, the character of heart that only your spirit can give to lead us into the way of grace and the way of life. Revive us and do whatever it takes to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name.